If you have your Bibles, you can be turning to Genesis chapter 23, which we'll read from in a moment. So the first day that we uh, moved into our flat in Edinburgh, there was a knock at the door, maybe two hours afterwards. We're very jet-lagged, we're very tired. Open up the door, and it's a 90-year-old blind man named Bill Anderson. Bill became a very frequent visitor of our flat and a very dear friend before, we, um, before he went to be with the Lord in 2020. We had the privilege of knowing him for about a year. And it turns out that a local Nashville musician named Drew Holcomb, I don't know if you guys know Drew Holcomb, also lived in Edinburgh for a time and also had the privilege of knowing Bill Anderson, Blind William. And so Drew ended up writing a song about him called The Promised Land. And I want to read you some of the lyrics from that. William Anderson was blind as an alley cat, old man on the streets of Edinburgh, taught me many things. I watched him walk the streets in faithfulness. I remember you, my friend, how you came and took my hand. May seem like it was years ago. You walked me through the promised land. It's a lovely song. It's called The Promised Land. When Bill uh, died, he was buried in Grange Cemetery, which is a beautiful old cemetery in a lovely part of Edinburgh. And he was buried alongside some of the church heroes from Scotland that he loved admired and studied for many years, like Thomas Chalmers and Thomas Guthrie and William Cunningham. His, he was an amateur historian of the church and would have no, there could be no better place for him to be buried. And, uh, well, I'll save that for later. The death and burial of every child of God is a monument of hope in the gospel. Like Ryan shared with us last week on Slack, that death for us becomes a gardener, not an executioner. Because Bill one day is gonna stand up from that grave in the Grange and he's going to see Jesus face to face. He'll finally see. And it'll be alongside all of these men that he's loved and admired who also are waiting on the Lord. But you don't have to wait until you're planted in the ground for your whole life to be a monument of hope in the gospel. You don't have to wait to plant your feet on the rock. Your whole life can do that now. But it's pretty hard when things go dark. That's what this story in Genesis 23 at the end of Abraham's life is actually all about. It's a monument of hope when things go dark. Genesis 23 and then what we're going to study next week to wrap up the Genesis um, Abraham story, it's the epilogue to Abraham's part of the story of Genesis. So the main strokes of this story went from chapter 12 where he was called to you know, leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house and go to the land that I will show you, to chapter 22, where he was called to take his son, your only son whom you love, and go to the mountain that I will show you. That's the main story of Abraham. And these last two chapters are the epilogue. It's the bow on the end of this part of the narrative that transitions us to what's coming next, which is Isaac. And part of that transition to Isaac has to do with the promises that 
Abraham has received from God. There's really two main, there's a lot of promises, but there's two main aspects of the promise. There's the people and there's the place. God says, I promise I'm going to give you an offspring, and in this people, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's promise one. Promise two is, I'm going to take you to this place, this promised land, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to give it to your offspring, and it will be a forever inheritance. So now as we move into the story of Isaac soon, that's going to deal a lot with the promise of the people. But this epilogue to Abraham's story is dealing with the promise of the land. So hold that in your minds. Now, I know this is a long introduction before we read the text, but we're coming to that. Um, There's two issues in the story we're about to read. The first is that God doesn't seem to be in it. It's like the book of Esther. The, the word God is used one time on the lips of the Hittites, and they're just saying to Abraham, you're, you're like a prince among the gods. You're very important. But God himself, I mean, Abraham's walked with God like a friend, spoken face to face with the creator of the universe, and he's not showing up and walking with him here in that same way. That's the first problem. God doesn't seem to be present in this story. The second problem is that Abraham is clearly nearing the end of his very long life. And the promise of him receiving the land hasn't come to pass. God has delayed keeping his promise. I wonder if God seems absent from your story today. There are large seasons of my life where I feel that way. And I wonder what promises you cling to in Christ. What prayers you're praying that God has not answered yet. And things are beginning to go dark. I know that to be true for some of you. If your faith has gone dark like that, you are in very good company with Abraham. So our first point, ask the question then answers the question, really, that when God seems distant, now what? When God seems slow, then what? So point number one, know your homeland. That's what. Now let's read from Genesis 23, verses 1 through 7. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bear your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. This is the word of God. It's weird, isn't it? It's very contracty and negotiation-y, and there's more. We're going to finish the chapter. But to understand what's going on here, we need to pull back the curtain a little bit and look at the normal burial practices of the Hittites and the Canaanites 
in Abraham's day. Um, it's as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> so here's how this usually works. When someone in your family dies, and if you're a sojourner in the land, here's what you have to do. You've got a problem and you've got a goal. The problem is, if you're a sojourner, you can't just wander the land with a body in tow for obvious reasons. It's a hot place. The goal then is to get the body of your loved one into your ancestral tomb in your homeland. You know, our parents and grandparents would have had a plot purchased for themselves in a graveyard somewhere, right? It's like that. Every family has your own homeland and your ancestral tomb. So the goal is, if you're a sojourner in this land, how do you handle the body to get back to this land to bury your dead in the ancestral tomb? Now, this is the situation Abraham finds himself in. His lifelong companion and his wife has died, and her body is literally out in the open. Abraham says, I want to bury her out of my sight. Can you imagine weeping for your spouse in front of the city gates? Now, if you were to go to the land of Canaan, even now in this region, you can see this. Um, if Kyle were here, I'd get an amen because he's been there. Um, there's a lot of caves and a lot of tombs all over the place in this land. It's been occupied for a very long time. And there's something unique about these caves and tombs, and that's that they're limestone. Now, do you know what limestone does to bodies? It decomposes it very rapidly. So here's what the caves were like. You would go into a tomb, and there would be a shelf cut into the wall, and you would place the body on that shelf and leave for about a year. And you'd come back and collect the nice clean bones that were left. And you'd put them in a little box about as long as the femur, which is the longest bone in the body, I'm told by smart people. And you'd put them in this ossuary box and you would take that box and then you would sojourn back to your homeland and bury the box in the ancestral tomb. Okay, that's a lot. Are you with me? Thank you. Uh, that's why the Hittites make their first offer. Verse 6, they say, Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Okay, so then what happens? Abraham bows. Doesn't really say much, he just bows. Now, he bows twice in this chapter, and every time he bows, it's a very polite uh, way to say, no, thank you. So just think, every time, as we continue reading, every time you see Abraham bow, he's being polite and firmly saying no. Me. <clears throat> so they're saying, you're a sojourner, we get it. Go ahead and use one of our tombs. Put the body on the shelf. Come back in a year, and then you can be on your way to your homeland. And Abraham remembers the promise of God and essentially says, this is my homeland. So he bows. No, no temporary tomb will do. Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, the man we met 11 chapters ago, doesn't exist anymore. 
Avram, whose father settled in Haran and became a big deal there, he's dead now. The man that we see before us in Scripture is Abraham, father of a multitude, man of faith, friend of God. It's like he's a new creation. And he's got a new homeland. His citizenship is somewhere else. And he knows that. He knows where his homeland is. Wonder if we do. Abraham's faith wasn't just in a promise. Abraham's faith was in the God who made the promise. And this God doesn't change. It's what makes him reliable. He's steady. He's unwavering. There is no variation or shadow in his light due to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when he seems absent in this story, we know from past experience with Abraham that he's not. We know that he's good to keep his word. We know he's steady. But Abraham's faith was more than that. It was also in, had he known it, in the offspring of promise. Without knowing all the details, Peter says that the prophets of old longed to know what they were talking about, but they knew they were believing into something that was yet to come. So without knowing those details, Abraham had heard God say, that a future offspring of his, offspring singular, Galatians 3, would save the world. And Abraham believed him. Abraham believed in him. Again, Paul says in Galatians 3, that offspring is Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. And if we have faith in Jesus... If we believe that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification, then we are children of Abraham, because so did he. With whatever light he had in that unlit room, he believed. Some of us are from Washington, California, uh, New York, Illinois. You know, We've got a lot of different places that we come from. But where's your homeland? It's Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Because if you're a child of Abraham, then your homeland is, it's not Canaan. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It is with Jesus, William. That's right. Where Jesus goes, those who are united to him by faith go. The ultimate promised land. So this strange little story here at the end of, Gen of, of Abraham's story in Genesis stands for all of human history to demonstrate to us God's faithfulness to his promises, even when he seems absent and even when his promises seem delayed. And it stands to show us what it looks like to live in such a way that only makes sense if God is good and God is for you. So where is your homeland? Are you putting, and I'm asking myself this this week, am I putting all of my hope, all of my blood, sweat, and tears into this home, this place? 
my house, this local church, this church building, our community, our neighborhood, our city, etc.? Or are we putting our resources into our true homeland? Or are we citizens of heaven, to say it another way? Is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? I can usually count on William to answer my rhetorical questions. Is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? Yes. Do we go who are united by faith to Christ where Jesus went? Then if you believe your homeland is with Christ, that's why the New Testament says, like, where are you right now? Are you in Nashville, Tennessee? Sort of. But you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's as good as done. You're as good as there. Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham, quote, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you look forward to that city? This month I'm looking forward to it a little more than I was before. Hebrews goes on uh, 11 in verses 13 through 16, speaking of Abraham and Sarah and all these descendants that we're going to be reading about in Genesis, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Do you have a category in your mind for the Christian life being such that you die without receiving the things that you hope in, that you hope for? They did not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's a good passage from the Bible. <laughs> Do you desire a better country? So that's number one, know your homeland. Number two, bank on it. Know your homeland and bank on it. Let's continue reading from Genesis 23, verse 8 through the end of the chapter. This is Abraham speaking. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. You remember what that means. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, 
that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. All right, so let's recap. The first stage of negotiations was the offer of a temporary tomb. And Abraham says, no, thank you. The second stage of the negotiations was an offer for Ephron, from Ephron, to give Abraham the field and the cave, to free its gift, right? So uh, that's in verse 12, right? But again, Abraham politely bows. Why? Why doesn't he receive the offer? Why doesn't he save the money, right? And, and take, take Ephron up on his generosity, well, to understand that, um, I think we need to understand a little bit about how land acquisition works. So, um, you know, Canaanite real estate law. Basically, the land was so deeply tied to family identity in their culture that it became legally tied as well. The land and the family went together. So Abraham if he had received the land for free, the result of their law would be when Abraham himself dies, the land goes back to Ephron the Hittite. It's still temporary. Even today, we have a funny way of reclaiming gifts given in haste. So Abraham, he must have stopped and asked himself, knowing that about the law, you can see he's a master of Canaanite and Hittite culture. He knows how to play this game with them. He's doing brilliantly. So knowing all of that, he must have stopped and said to himself, well, if God has promised me and my offspring this land as a forever inheritance, then would such a deal, would it compromise me in the sight of God? Would it be a compromise to sort of get it when God says, this is yours? So Abraham responds in verse 13, and he said to Ephron, the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me. And then Ephron responds, and you probably caught it in, in my tone of voice, if not in the text alone, you know, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth, you know, 400 shekels of silver, wink, what's that between you and me? But he's, he's saying no, like, no, 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 don't buy it from me. Don't buy this 400 shekel of silver valued land from me, you know? And Abraham knows exactly what he's doing. So he begins weighing out silver. The thing is that Ephron has slyly suggested an extraordinary amount of money for that field. A whole lot. 
I don't know exactly the equivalencies, but it's more than a field and a cave were worth by a whole lot. And the way that these negotiations would typically work is he says 400 shekels of silver between you and me. And then Abraham says, well, yeah, 150 sounds great. And then you haggle. He didn't expect, I don't think, Abraham to just start weighing out silver. Okay, I'll pay it. He secured the cave and he bought the field in such a way that no one could ever question his ownership. No one in the land could ever say, Abraham really pulled the wool over old Ephron's eyes, didn't he? His ownership was legal and certain. In other words, his circumstance began to reflect, just began to, the reality that God had promised him. God says this whole land will be yours, and now he finally owns a little piece of it. Abraham trusted in God even when he seemed absent from this story. And even when at the end of his long life, God's promise seemed so unreasonably delayed, he still knew his homeland. And now he's banking on it. He put his money where his mouth is. Might be better to say he put his money where his heart is. Because it was the promised offspring of Abraham himself who says in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, live with your resources in such a way that only makes sense if your homeland is heaven. That's challenging and it's exciting. Abraham does just that. What's money for anyway, if not to glorify God? So Abraham weighs out 400 shekels of silver. And with every shekel he lays on the scale, this is my homeland. This is my homeland. He's banking on it. God is my God. I am his people. He keeps his promises. He's promised an offspring, and we got it. Now he's promised a land. He's banking physically, actively on the promises of God. The author Madeleine Langle once quoted a French cardinal whose name I can't pronounce, saying this, quote, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up but in being a living mystery means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. That's worth a family meeting in your home, a cup of tea and some prayer and thought. How can we live and follow Jesus in such a way that the only explanation is God is alive and for us? So let's say that God seems absent from your story. What does it look like to be a living mystery in that situation where your God, who's supposed to be near to the brokenhearted, feels so distant and uninvolved and disinterested in your life? Tell me you can't relate to that. What does it look like? Maybe it looks like Elizabeth Elliot. 
losing her husband for, you know, martyred for trying to preach the gospel. And then she just does the next right thing and the next right thing. Ironing while you die to self. Cutting onions for the glory of God. Sometimes just doing the next right thing is the right thing. And it is being a living mystery. It doesn't have to be complicated. Maybe it's waking up early and cracking open the Bible when you don't want to. Maybe it's being okay with saying, this is good for me even when I don't delight in it. Maybe I can start to delight on it. But sometimes we have seasons where we just need to keep laying wood on the altar. There's no fire yet, but you keep stacking the wood and trust one day he'll send the fire. Or let's say that you are constantly praying to the Lord and trusting and asking Jesus for something in particular. Maybe it's deliverance from physical disease. Maybe it's the salvation of someone you love dearly and can't bear to see walk away from the Lord. I don't say either of those things lightly. And then you think about Jesus' promise in John 14 where he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so you ask and you ask and you ask and he doesn't do it. What do you do? How do you live like a living mystery in that situation? Listen, we are not those who put our hope in this mortal body, in this mortal life. We desire a better country. And all of our spiritual forefathers before Christ died having not received the things promised but greeting their hope from afar. Now we stand on the other side of the cross. So we look back at the ultimate experience of suffering, both in the body, we get the word excruciating from the word crucifixion, both in the body and in the soul. No one's ever suffered like the Lord Jesus. And we look at that and then we see the empty tomb. And we have to tell our souls, if God himself would go through that for me, the extremity of suffering for the extremity of good, what can't I wait on him for? Maybe he wants me to die with a thorn in my flesh and wake up in glory forever. Maybe that's okay with a God like that. Our hope is not in this world. We are not home. You're a citizen of heaven. You are a co-heir with Christ. For us, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So we desire a better country, don't we? And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called your God. And he has prepared for you a city. What if we lived like that's true?
What if we resolved before God now to make our lives monuments of faith and hope in the gospel? Unexplainable, but for the power of God. Old Bill Anderson, our dear blind friend in Edinburgh, he used to love going for long walks in and around the city, though he was blind. And so he would take his friend named Alec, uh, who he only called the big fella. Um, he was probably half his age and a couple inches taller than him. So one day he invited us and our family to walk up Blackford Hill with him and the big fella. And uh, Blackford Hill is this place where you get an incredible view of this whole lovely city and beyond to the North Sea and almost to the highlands. Now, so like I mentioned, Bill was an amateur historian and a lover of Edinburgh and the church history, especially in that place. And so every site, every monument, every castle, every hill was dear to him and known to him. He knew them by heart. Though he was blind, he would walk the streets in his mind and he would see in his mind. So there we stood on the top of Blackford Hill with an old blind man. And he would stretch out his hands and point to something in the distance that he couldn't see. And he would say something like, you see that tower just to the west of that tower is where the Covenanters were martyred in 1579. And, you know, he's pointing out there. <laughs> and the big fella would reach up and gently just do this <laughs> until he was pointing in the right direction. Bill Anderson had imagined his homeland so often he could walk it blind. He could see it. Maybe we can learn something from him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your power over death and sin. And we thank you that you have called us by name, that you've given us faith. We didn't conjure this up ourselves and that you've united us to yourself by your Holy Spirit so that where you go, we go. And now you are in the promised land waiting for us, calling us home. And you're promising to collide heaven and earth and recreate this mess and make it perfect. And then you call us co-heirs with you of that new reality that's forever. And that's, I barely believe that. It's staggering. And I think you're giving my heart, and I pray you're giving the hearts of my brothers and sisters today a glimpse of the homeland right now that says maybe it's worth suffering a while longer here if we get there with you. Would you give us the faith to see and the faith to live and the strength from you that we need today to walk by faith and to bank on your promises? Amen.